All right, let's take our copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, please. Is this, we use this for the music. Is it too loud now? Is it bothering anybody? Turn it off. Everybody good? All right, Philippians chapter 3. We've been going through this book, and I've, I've preached through Philippians uh, uh, before. And I don't know if I went chapter by chapter through this church before, uh, but I've preached through it before at, uh, at a different church uh, about a decade ago, I guess, or maybe eight, seven or eight years ago. Um, and I know I've preached similar of, to this message here in chapter 3, and it is a phenomenal uh, chapter. It is, it is a blessing. I hope it's a blessing to you this morning as we get into the Word of God. Um, but I have titled this message this morning, A Loss for the Cross. And I, have, I know that I've preached a message titled that here. It's a little different than what we've done, uh, what we preached, uh, I guess, about three years ago. Uh, but a loss for the cross. And I want to begin reading right there Philippians chapter 3. And I also want to say, before we get into the sermon this morning, that we want to praise the Lord. And, and sometimes you can see that these, got, these two folks have some musical talent. And I maybe, maybe well, I'm not going to say a little bit. But we can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I appreciate y'all. You know, as we went through that one song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, kind of filling in and, and carrying it, that's, 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 that's divine to me. And, and I think the Lord is pleased with those things. But in this text, well, let's just read through the text first, and, and then we'll, we'll get into the message. Let's look at verse number 1 of Philippians chapter 3. The Bible says, the Word of God, uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but to, for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Verse 5 says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God. The righteousness which is of God. Uh, let me just read verse 9 again. And be found in him, and not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and in anything uh, ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, 
whereto we have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. And we'll, we'll pause right there. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be in your house this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your word will not return void. I know that this is your promise. Lord, help us to open our hearts and minds, Lord, uh, to hear what you have for us this morning. Lord, help us to ignore the morning. Uh, Lord, just to ignore what's on the agenda, maybe in the afternoon or even the week or even the year, Lord, and help us to, to put all these things. Help us to be completely in tune to you this morning. Help us to be used of you. And help, us to be, help us to meet with you. Help us to worship you. Lord, we need you this morning. Lord, I need you this morning. Fill me with your power this morning as I preach what you've given to me to, to say, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, thank you for worshiping with us today. I know it's not, uh, it, it is a... Is a known choice. You make a choice to worship here, and the Lord appreciates that. But in this marvelous chapter, uh, it begins uh, right there in verse number one with an imperative to rejoice in the Lord, and it continues with a warning. We're going to go through the first few verses here, kind of, kind of give, laying a foundation for the message here, kind of a long introduction. Uh, but so verse three tells us to, to rejoice, or verse one rather tells us to rejoice, and then it uh, it tells us to beware of dogs there in verse number two. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, the dogs there uh, is probably a reference to Gentiles. Many times it's used in Gentiles there. Gentile agitators who are resisting the gospel there in Macedonia. The evil workers are, are probably a reference to Gentiles who actively oppose the gospel. So ones who are just kind of... Um, resisting it than other ones who actively are opposing the gospel. And then it don't take too hard to figure out who the concision represents. It is no doubt a reference to unbelieving Jews who hate the gospel. They do not want to see the Judaism go away. And we talked about this many, many, uh, many times, how Christianity is simply Judaism mature. Judaism was stuck in its adolescence because they couldn't see past the law. And Christ came and took it out of its adolescence into its maturity, into the church today, the Christianity, and all the things that we have today. Now, we're different than Israel, of course. But here we are. Paul's warning us. Paul's warning the Philippian Christians about the circumcision. And if you think about it, as he develops this foundation here, all of the resistance toward the gospel, whether Gentile or Jew, it all is sourced in some sort of pride. It's all in source, uh, sourced in some kind of self-reliance, which Paul immediately contrasts here with us who do not rely on the flesh. Look at, look at uh, verse 3 again. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. The contrast here is specifically to Christianity and Judaism. We are the circumcision, he says, not the Jews. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, that's probably going to make you open your eyes a little bit and pay attention to what Paul is saying because that was their thing. We are the circumcision. But Paul is saying we are the circumcision. Look, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Now without getting into too much detail about circumcision, but it was a, in the Old Testament it was a rite that God used to separate the Jews, His chosen people, from the rest of the world. To cut them off, if you will, from unholiness. It was an act that showed God that the individual Jew did not trust in himself. It symbolized, quite frankly here as we see through the rest of chapter 3 here, it symbolized one being dead to self as a man and even as a father. 
and alive to the things of God. Now, even though the Messiah, God promised, would be born through Jewish lineage, they were not to trust in their ability to bring in the Messiah. They were supposed to trust in God. Circumcision then pictured the cutting off of self and selfish desires and counting all those things lost for the things of God, for their Creator. That's why Paul builds this foundation here. But for the Jews, somewhere along the line, they began to view their separation as, as something in themselves, as something, along, as something that was built inside of them. They focused on self-worth instead of self-denial. Confidence in the flesh entered. Pride entered. Sin entered. And all of these things made them not only blind to the riches of Christ, for many it made them hostile. Hostile to the riches of Christ. Hostile to the gospel. But for Christians, for us, for you and me, who have accepted Christ as our Savior and have been redeemed, we do not put confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh when it comes to living our life for the Lord. Now, it's not that we have less confidence than the Jews. It's not that we only have a little confidence. We have zero confidence in the flesh. No confidence. And Paul, like any preacher here, kind of throws himself out as an example here. In verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. If there's any other Jew out there that thinks he's doing enough, has something to offer God, I have something more. If there's any person out there who believes that, they're, that they're, they have such a great portfolio today, maybe, they have such greatness within them, they are so capable of pleasing God because of their own accomplishments in life. Whoever you are, Paul says, this is scripture here, so it's kind of elevated just from Paul's words here. He says, I have more to trust in. I have more of a reason to trust in the flesh than you do. Than you do. Than I. Paul says, let me tell you about, a little bit about me. But before we get to that, I want to say the only way to God, no surprise, has always been God's way. The only way to God has always been God's way. Before the cross, it was through Judaism. And in the mind of a Jew, in the mind of Paul, and even those around him, Galileo and all those that trained him, the other Pharisees, Paul was the epitome of a Jew. This verse 8 right there in verse 9, uh, verse 6, 5 and 6 rather, talking about how he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This is inspired scripture. This is Paul speaking, I beat them all in the flesh. He did everything that was expected of him and he did it well. He wasn't sinless, of course, but all knew. All those folks around the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul knew that he would go far in life. Now, he did go far in life, but not in the way that they would have, imagine, would have imagined. And in our modern understanding, you can kind of picture yourself maybe at high school or maybe in college. This would be the best soccer player, you know, the, best, the first string quarterback or whatever it may be. This person got all A's in school, aced theology, aced um, chemistry and all those calculuses and all those things like that. He, he never missed a church service. He was, he was godly. He dotted all his I's and crossed all his T's. Yes, ma'am and no, sir, and all these things like that. He would go far in life, not only in his mind, but in others, and he believed he, would, he deserved to go far in life. He had it all. Now, his resume, in his own words, again, says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. It was a good thing to him to persecute the church at one time. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. Paul had achieved much and seemingly had it all, but he was missing Christ. And after his road to Damascus conversion, all that he was now and all that he would ever be, he now counted loss. It was now nothing to him. All the things that he had gained and all the things that he would ever gain, he now considered loss. Look, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And verse 7 kind of drives home that point. Uh, drives home that point even further. Verse uh, 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now for the record here, the things Paul is referring to are those things that would normally be near and dear to him as they would be to us. It was all things he counted loss, yes, but specifically those things that were gained to him. In other words, we don't suffer for Jesus by going without the things that are not dear unto us. If giving a nickel to God or someone else uh, that might be in need, if that doesn't mean anything to you, it probably doesn't mean anything to God. If I chose to suffer for Christ by fasting from certain things I don't like, you know, last week I, I shared with y'all how I had to eat something very interesting. And it was not very good at all. <laughs> Chicken feet. Y'all heard the story, right? And... If I fasted for the rest of my life from chicken feet, which I promise I will, that doesn't do anything for God. Because I'm not giving anything up for God. It didn't cost me anything. And if it doesn't cost us anything, it doesn't mean anything to God. Maybe it's too simple of a statement this morning, but giving something away that has no value to you, it has no value to God. That's not what Paul's talking about here about counting all things lost. Counting things lost for God that don't matter to you won't matter to God. Remember the poor widow in Luke 21? Remember how all those rich folks were coming up there? Maybe even some Pharisees and they were putting in all their, all, all their, uh, their monies there. And they gave in way more, much more than this woman did. She gave in two coins, two mites. But she gave something that was of value to her. It meant something to her. Luke, uh, or Jesus said in Luke 21, 3, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than they all. Why? Because she, because what was gained to her, she counted loss. It, she gave something that meant to her. It was a matter of her heart. And Luke records Paul uh, in Acts chapter 20. We don't have to turn there, but Luke gives an example of Paul living out his, his, his chapter here about counting things lost. Y'all remember when he was coming back down to after the end of his third missionary journey, he was going to Jerusalem and he told them, or they told Paul, you know, there's some crazy things waiting, waiting for you in Jerusalem. Could, they could imprison you. The Jews want you. You, know, you could very well die there. And after being warned of those things, Paul responded in Acts 20, 24 with, none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. Now, many times we, we, we want to put Paul on some pedestal, but he was a man. He was a human, just like you and I. He made the same choices that you and I can make. And in this, he was truly only following the example of our Savior, who when faced with the cross, with faced, when faced with torture and death, said, Not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine. 
In fact, if you want to go back one page or however it may be in your Bible, the Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus completely emptied himself so that we can find redemption. Look at verse, uh, verse number 5. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The famous kenosis passes, the emptying of himself, and took upon him the form of a servant, from a form of God to a form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The cross. You see, literally, Christ counted his entire physical being a loss for the cross. He fully submitted himself to the will of the Father as a man, as our example, as our Redeemer, and he became our sin. Jesus was poured out for our redemption, poured out as the perfect man. I mean, I want you to picture this for a moment here, not, not to prey on our emotions here, but as the perfect man, he hung there on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth, forsaken by God and forsaken by man, for man. He came, he emptied himself, all things lost for the cause of the cross. And before we get back into the text this morning, I want to ask, what more? What more could Christ have given up when he gave up the ghost? What more will it take for me or to you to honestly say what things are gained to me? I count as a loss for Christ. And I'm not saying that we should not have gain. Of course, God blesses us. The Bible says every good thing comes from God. But our gifts, our talents, our blessings, our achievements are nothing without Christ. All of these things and more must take a back seat to who we are in Christ. They're all from Him anyway. So God is not asking you to throw your crew away. Not that I know of anyway. Maybe, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He's not necessarily doing that. And he's not necessarily asking you to forsake your dreams, your career, or even your life. But he is asking you to be willing to do so. He is asking for your heart. You know, there's many things that I would love to have done. And many things that I, I chalk it up to a career in the military and how I've considered those things a loss, if you will, for my country. And I separate those things and I, I don't live the life that I maybe have wanted to have lived for a life in the army. Now, there's some sacrifices there. I get it. And I'm not want to focus on those things. But as Christians, should we not be willing to focus or to sacrifice or to count as a loss even more so for Christ than we do for our country? What are you willing to count as a loss for the cross? Are you willing to give up your dreams? Are you willing to give up your career? Are you willing to give up your lifestyle, your life? Who is Jesus to you? I was texting with Josh. Many of y'all know him. He's, he's served here for a number of years. And um, he was talking about how he's just counting the days they get back over here. And I was thinking, what, what do we give up for Christ? What are we willing uh, to give up for the Lord? How far will we go? You know, the, the ministry, and this is not necessarily a call to ministry unless it is in your heart from the Lord. Ministry is short on laborers. 
You know, in the Army, I was an infantryman for a while, and, you know, they had this, that trench warfare. You know, it maybe dates me. You don't really do that anymore, you know. But, you know, they got the commanders, and they're walking on top of the trenches during training, of course. And they're walking. And the, and the soldiers are in the trenches, and they're, they're, they're winning the battle, so to speak. And there's, there's folks on top again. But it seems in the ministry today, in Christianity, there's a lot of people walking on top of the trenches. And not enough people in them. If we were to put that in, in a Christian perspective, the number of folks that would be in the trenches are walking above them, and you got just a handful of folks plowing the way. We need more laborers. What will you give up for Christ? Will you live for Him in all that you are? And I want to point out that, again, that this is the Apostle Paul writing these things. He gave up so much. But uh, I want to point out also that he's not writing about salvation. He's already met Christ. He's already been on that road to Damascus this, uh, already. And in this, in his concept here of giving all things or counting all things a loss, he gives us a few things here. A few reasons, if you will, to count all things loss for the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just look through these things here. Uh, so we have a loss for the cross. And number one, I want you to look at verse number eight. Actually, put it in verse 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He wants to win Jesus Christ. Notice, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The excellency of what I already know in Christ, Paul says, is greater than any possession that I have or could ever have. And I count all things lost for that personal knowledge. For that walk, that who I am in Christ, I count them all things lost. Paul, notice that Paul didn't list material things in his resume. He listed personal things, the things that he accomplished he did not reference his belongings, he referenced his being. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, he counted himself a loss. I mean, think about that. He, he surrendered his entire existence to Christ just to know Christ a little bit more. He could honestly say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Galatians 6.14, he said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Listen, I'm preaching here this morning. I am not your example. Jesus Christ is your example. We must always be in this point here to not give ourselves glory, but to glory in the cross. We must follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand that there was nothing in us and there is nothing in us that merited our salvation. And everything good in us is from God. Everything good in us is from God. I just had my youngest child turn 18. And my wife turned at me and she's like, it's done. We've, we're, we're finished. I'm like, Sort of. Sort of finished. And uh, we come to the conclusion that everything that's good in them is from Jesus Christ. It's from God. And everything that's lacking, they learn from us and others. But everything good, all the things that are going to keep them on the right path comes from Almighty God. And the good that we've hopefully God has used us to, to pass along, I think what Paul is getting at here is that everything good in us is from God. And whatever control we have over that good in us, we want to live it for Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to win Christ. One of the definitions found in Strong's Concordance for win is to gain favor. 
know, last week we, we briefly looked at the difference between working out our salvation. Remember back there, working out, look at verse number, chapter 2 of verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul wrote, My beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we talked about that working out and that working in. The working in is what God does in us for salvation. The working out and fear and trembling is what God does through us in sanctification. In other words, Paul here has a deep spiritual desire to please God. He was pressed in the spirit. He pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, not to earn. I mean, think about this. How many marriages today, husband and wives, marriages today are works-based? You know what I'm saying? How many marriages are based only on what the other spouse does for us? Or are they based on love? Are they based because I love her and she loves me? That's how they endure. Or are, or are they works-based? I will tell you, just from my personal experience, that all those marriages that are based on love... With God at the core, those are the ones who, that last. The ones that always need others to serve them, whatever it may be, those are the ones that do not matter. They don't make. They don't last, rather. I mean, think about that with our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not works-based. It's love-based. It's grace. God loved us, so we live for Him. We show our love by being obedient to Him. Paul, Paul here pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus because he loved him. Not to earn salvation, but to earn favor after salvation. He wasn't looking for silver. He wasn't looking for gold. He wasn't looking for a pay raise or a bonus. He was looking for, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul was already a redeemed man. If you have trusted Christ, you are already a redeemed person. But we should have a desire to be a rewarded pers a person in Christ. Paul wanted to win Christ. We must want to win Christ. To win God's favor in every aspect of our life. I wonder if we truly desire to win Christ sometimes. I wonder if I, um, in my own life, as I put these messages together like this, the Lord just speaks volumes to my heart. He's like, well, are you putting me first? Is all that you do there to win me, to win favor? Every time I read, study, or preach from Philippians 3, I'm challenged to consider all that I am and all that I will be, my entire being, all that I am and represent, a loss for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that should be our goal. And this should be the thrust of the text into our hearts to give all that we are to Jesus Christ, that we may win Him. But Paul not only had a desire to win Christ... Paul and us as well should have a desire to be found in Christ. Now these things kind of build on each other and we'll bring all these things to a, uh, to a convergence here at the end of the message here. But we are to want to win Christ. We are to be found in Christ. Look at verse 9. Well, he ends. Let's put it all together there. I count all things uh, lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus that I may win Christ. Verse 9, and, and be found in Him. And to be found in Christ. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul clearly refers to the law in contrast to our faith. And I think God is truly leading him and us to understand something deeper than just superficial Christianity. 
He wants us to go a little bit further than the world's identity, the world's identification, rather, of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. There, here is where we find our definitions, not in what some preacher says that's not in accordance with this book, not in any religion, not any websites. It has to be in accordance with this book to be found in Christ. God is leading us to be more in him. We are, and Paul here desires that in addition to his being, he wants even his behavior to be found in Christ. He doesn't want his own righteousness, but he wants God's righteousness, the righteousness that is found in faith. In Romans chapter 4, or 14, verse 23, Paul wrote this, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's a, that's a straight black and white verse. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That revolutionized me when I really started to study that verse in a different passage, at a different, in a different time here. Whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. Paul is saying, my position is already in Christ. I want, to, I want my practice to be found in Christ. You know, I've already mentioned I was a soldier for a while, but can you imagine claiming to be a soldier and never putting on a uniform? Hey, you know, Harry here is a rugby player. You play rugby, right? You have to play rugby if you're going to say, I am a rugby player. If you are a Christian, then you have to follow Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, my position is in Christ. I want all of my practice to be found in Christ. I want my behavior to follow my beliefs. I want to be found in Him. I don't care what the situation is. It doesn't matter what's at stake to me. I don't care what bridges need to be burned or what bridges need to be built. The earthly consequences to Paul did not matter. He counted it all a loss to be found in Christ. Now this, of course, goes right along with our desire to win Christ, but with a greater perspective here on faith-based works rather than obligatory works. In other words, when we read our Bible, when we come to church, or even when we pray, if we do those things because we have an obligation to do so, do them. If, if that's all that drives you, then still do them. But Paul wants more. Paul wants you to do those things because you love Christ accordance to, in accordance to live out our faith, to work out our salvation, if you will. Yes, we are to be obedient to Christ. Even the most wretched of us can be obedient from time to time, though. God wants more than just obedience. He wants a life of faith. Paul said, I do not want my own righteousness. I mean, think about it. When we, when we read our Bibles, we come to church on our own merits, on our own will, on our own sacrifices, if you will, and we're doing it for self. We, well, I'm here, and I'm going to do this, look at me, and all those things. We're not pleasing God at all. That's our own righteousness. We need to do it through faith. Not my own righteousness, which is of the law, of obligation, if you will, but that which is through the faith of Christ. You know, my righteousness gets me nowhere. Filthy rags. But the righteousness which is of God is imputed upon me and it brings eternal life. Think of it this way. The Bible states in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please Him. In 2 Timothy 2.4 the Bible tells us that the more we are separated unto God, the more we are not entangled in the, in the things of this world, the more we will please Him. So a life of faith is simply trusting God at His word. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's, sometimes it's hard for us to identify how to live or what it means to live out our faith. We must trust this book. If this book says this, we do it regardless of the consequences. We, we follow it. We live 
Bible says, if you follow me, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. There in Matthew 4.19, following him makes us fishers of men. So when we go to fish, even when we don't want to fish, we trust the book and God will make us a fisherman. We follow him, trusting God and his word, trusting that he will be pleased with our practice because he says so in his word. The application, I think, is clear for me, at least. Many of us, and many of the time, much of the time, I seem to be content to be found in Christ positionally, but not practically. Does that make sense? George Weir said, it's fire insurance to many of us today. Oh, I'm in Christ, but not practically. I'm in Christ positionally, but not practically. I think when we're forced to make a choice sometimes, when it comes down to a life or death situation, when we think our eternal life hangs in the balance, then we start to live out our faith. By faith, we are found in Christ. But I think Paul wants more. I think God wants more, more importantly. In the day-by-day -day surrender of self to the Savior, we need to be all in for Christ. Many of us are content with our belief in God, but it has a small effect on our behavior. I'm guilty. I'm guilty every single week. Do we offer our own righteousness to God? Or do we take the righteousness which is of faith? Is our behavior in Christ? How we live our lives for Christ should matter to us more than anything in the world. Whatever situation we find ourselves in today or tomorrow, we must choose Christ regardless of all the fallout, we must choose Christ. And as this dialogue kind of unfolds here in, the, in this chapter here, in chapter 3, I think it crescendos here in verses 8, 9, and 10, at least in this passage. Actually, it just keeps right on going through the end of this chapter, even to the end of the book maybe. But he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which was of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead of uh, the resurrection of the dead so we are to win Christ to be found in Christ and then lastly to know Christ again I want to highlight again that Paul is not writing about his personal salvation he wants something more here he desires to apprehend to grab a hold of what he's been grabbed a hold of. You get that? So look down at verse number 13. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, actually verse number 12, not as though I had already apprehended, or attained rather, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. That word apprehends me to grab a hold of. He wants to grab a hold of the concept of the idea of Christ to know Christ, because Christ has grabbed a hold of him and all, that, and all that that means. Paul wants to grasp more. He deeply desires to know Christ intimately. Being a follower of Christ, for us, for you and I, should be a constant yearning. Should be a constant yearning to know more about Jesus Christ. And Paul here even admits that even he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know all there is to know about Christ, not as if he already attained. 
I think he would agree with David. You remember David in the Old Testament, Psalm 139? He said, such knowledge about God is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. And very clearly in this verse, we see that in Paul's desire to know Christ, he desires specifically three things here that we're not going to go into, but he desires to know his person, his power, and his pain. And while it's worthwhile to dig into those things, and I've preached those things through here the, before, I'd like to make a higher application, if that's even possible, or maybe even a different application this morning. Because I believe verse 10 is truly the compilation, the crescendo, if you will, of all that Paul wants to accomplish in him counting all things a loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. The desires to win Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know Christ all converge on this verse and on the next verse. Paul is saying that knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his spirit, or the fellowship of his suffering, rather, are all connected. They're all connected to our surrender. All of them. Knowing Christ. Look at verse 10 again. That I may know him, knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That's talking about counting all things lost. They're all connected to the surrender of ourself. Listen, as a Christian, this is, I believe, one of the most important lessons we could ever learn in our walk with the Lord. It is a lesson that even the Apostle Paul strived for. And what is that lesson in layman terms? Get this. The measure of what I count as a loss for Christ is directly proportional to Christ living through me. The measure of what I count as a loss for Christ, the measure of what you count as a loss for Christ, is directly proportional to Christ living through you. Look at verse 10 11 again. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain, I might grab a hold unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying that I count all things lost so that I may win Christ, be found in Christ, to know Christ. The more I let go of me, the more I am in Him. The more I surrender of myself to God, the more I am dead to self. The more I know Him, the more I am like Him. And the more I am like Him, the more I am made conformable unto His death. It, it is then and only then that you and I, when we get to that point, that we begin to grab a hold of what it means to have Christ live in us and through us. I hope that's coming across clear because if you are in Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a child of God, you are, you are a new creation, that old man is dead. He's gone. Well, he's not gone. He's still there. He likes to think that he's alive, but he is dead. That old man, the old you, he's a dead man. But let's be honest. Many times we do not want him to be dead. We like living in the dead, if you will. Even as Christians, even as your pastor, life gets to be all about me sometimes. But as clear as I can see in this text, as clear as I can see in other texts, and as clear as I can put it this morning, there is no new life without death. There is no new life until that old man is dead. Even following our Savior's example, for him there was no crown of life without the cross of Calvary. No cross, no crown. 
Notice Philippians 3 again. Paul wrote that I count all things lost so that I may win Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know him. If by any means, verse 11, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You and I cannot live a resurrected life without being dead first. What would be resurrected if it wasn't dead? There is nothing to resurrect if you don't die to self. Paul says, I die daily. The only way to live a resurrected life is to be dead to self every single day. It begins with salvation. The only way to get that resurrected life in Christ is to be dead to self, to follow Christ. And that's what it means to follow Him. We cannot live a resurrected life without first being dead. This is true of salvation, and this is true of our sanctification. If by any means, Paul says, I am going to comprehend what it means to live a resurrected life, I must first be made conformable unto his death. It is so simple, but yet it eludes most of us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you counted all things lost for Christ? If not, what are you holding on to? Why are you holding on to it? Those things that we hold on to, what value do they have in comparison to Christ? What more will it take for us what more will it take for me to honestly say what things are gained to me? I count it as a loss for the Lord Jesus Christ. What more is there? What more could God do? What more could He do? I do not know. I do not know. Let's pray.